So curiosity is something that is inherent in all of us. We're all curious in some way, shape, or form. There's not a single person who isn't curious. But I think as we grow up, some of our curiosities start to change. And what we're interested in starts to change. Hello, and welcome to the Ever Widening Circles podcast, where you'll hear from thought leaders in a wave of goodness and progress well underway around the globe that almost no one knows about. This podcast will give you hope for the future and help you take back control of your perspective on your online life. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles. Since 2014, We have written thousands of articles about insight, thought leaders, and innovation going uncelebrated. And along the way, we've been having incredible conversations with people who are making the world a better place. And now we're sharing them with the world. Today, we're going to meet Nathan Robinson. You may know Nathan's work. Nathan is the marine biologist who is well known for having pulled the plastic straw out of an Oliver Ridley turtle's nose, that a video that now has over 41 million views. And from that video came a wave of goodness and progress that's time had come. We started questioning things like plastic straws in our lives after that video. And I'm hoping that Nathan's going to share with us some insights that cause us to question and resolve so many so many things. So welcome, Nathan. Thank you, Dr. Linda. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And I'm very happy to be part of this, this growing circle, this ever-widening circle. Oh, that's so kind of you. Now, you know, I asked you just before we started chatting and recording who you're affiliated with, and I wanted to do a much better introduction than just this video that you're famous for. But, you know, <laughs> give us some indication of where your work is focusing these days and and all that. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a marine biologist, and my work really focuses on trying to answer important ecological questions. But at the same time, I try to build stories into that that help engage with global audiences to help make real change. Because I'm a believer that if we science in a bubble doesn't really doesn't have that much of an impact. If we really want to start through make the world a better place, then we need to start getting the messages that we're able to learn as scientists and getting it out to the broader world. So that's that's what my research does. So right now, I'm based in Valencia in Spain. I'm working as a researcher for the Fundación Oceanographic, but I also do a lot of work as an adjunct researcher for Purdue University in the US and West Connecticut State University. And all these different projects focus on different kind of aspects and often on different animals. I do a lot of stuff with sea turtles. I do a lot of stuff with sharks. I'm also growing into deep sea environments. But the theme that holds it together is about trying to get people excited. And what got me heading down this path of combining science and science communication, that engagement aspect, was being on a boat in a very lucky instant back in 2015. I was a working as a postdoc for Purdue University, and I was running a research station for sea turtles in Costa Rica. And a friend of mine, a real, a very dear friend of mine, Christine Figuena, 
who's another CTEL researcher, was conducting a project where she wanted to go sample some olive ridley sea turtles just off the coast of Costa Rica. And she needed someone who was able to work up these animals and collect some of the data she needed. And I was also an expert, actually, in studying the animals that live on other animals. The animals that live on sea turtles, we call epibionts. So I came on board to study these epibionts. One of the turtles that we found as we were looking over the animal to check for these epibionts, these epibionts, sometimes there might be little crabs, little worms, things like that. We found something that was wedged up inside the nostril of a sea turtle. And my first thought was that it was a tube worm. Now, a tube worm is just a worm covered in a hard shell. And sometimes lots of sea turtles or even just rocks, things like that in the ocean, anything solid in the ocean will have these worms that kind of stick to the shell. And I thought, unfortunately, a worm had basically made its home up inside the sea turtle's nostril. So we decided to investigate and we thought we'd try to poke, pull it out. It must be very uncomfortable. But as we started pulling it out, we realized that it wasn't a tube worm. We pulled out about a centimeter, we cut off what it was, and we realized it was plastic. And then when we extracted the full straw, we realized that it was a plastic drinking straw. That's kind of where there's a huge change in my life because we went home. Oh, and I, I need to mention at this point, while that video was recorded, I remember I was, as soon as we saw this, this sea turtle was something wedged in its nose, I was the one who kind of ran forward with my Swiss Army knife to try to remove it. It was Chris, who was the person who had the great idea to go ahead and grab the camera. And was like, you can't do anything until I've got my camera ready. She got the camera out. She filmed it. She put it online. And then it went insane. The whole world got so captivated by this story. And within, within days, we had millions of people reaching out to us. We saw headlines about this stuff. And then within weeks, we started seeing campaigns starting. Anti-plastic campaigns picked up all these people telling us, you've inspired me to make these changes and that was that was a huge catalyst moment in my life that's when i started to realize if i want to be a change maker it's not just about doing my research in a bubble it's about trying to connect research with engagement and that's how we're going to start to make these big sweeping changes that make our world and our oceans a, a better place wow what a story <laughs> it's such a story of serendipity and you know, it's one of those things like good thing, bad thing. Like, yes, mm -hmm. it was a terrible thing that you found this turtle in this state, but how much good has come out of this? And simply global awareness is really unbelievable. Completely. I don't, it was still an awful thing that happened. I, I, it was a horrible thing to have to, to witness. It was a horrible thing to have to happen to that animal. But the positive spin to it all is it really showed us and a lot of the global community what's going on in our oceans and the worrying thing is this is not a there's not a single event in fact about two months after we removed a, a plastic drinking straw from a sea turtle's nose i was working on a different beach well i was working on a, a different nesting beach for sea turtles somewhere else in the country and this we found the exact same thing apart from this time instead of a plastic straw it was a plastic fork with the tines which is the head of the fork actually wedged inside the nostril of this animal and it just really helped to show for so many people worldwide there's plastic is everywhere those this plastic fork that we're using the plastic straw that we're using has a, a global impact 
But the positive side is that when people started to see that impact, it wasn't people didn't shrug their shoulders and walk away. People started to say, "This is not the world I want to live in. I don't want to have the conscious of a dead sea turtle on my on my hands by throwing away a plastic straw. I want to see that change." And look at it now. There's parts in the world where you go, you can go from you can go from bar to bar. You can do a pub crawl and not see a straw <laughs> in sight, and it's wonderful. It's been it's been amazing. It's been an absolute privilege to see this this change and. I love the thing that honestly excites me the most is I like how it's how organically it's grown. Myself and Chris put the video out there, and then there was so many campaigns that spread out that that inspired so many other people, that inspired so many other people, and everyone kind of fed off their each other with their own stories and their own inspiration. So we collectively decided that this is not the world we want to live in. We want to live in a better world, and that's the where we're that's the direction we're heading in. Yeah, I think it's opened sort of a a new social contract about mm-hmm. looking at the single-use world mm-hmm. that we're in. I mean, this is really something that I don't think people gave too much thought to before the impact of that video, this single-use plastic thing. And it's a, it's a very interesting topic right now, especially with everything that's going on around the world in terms of COVID. But what is interesting is it's st- you start to reevaluate. There's certain single-use plastics that are necessary for life, the universe, and everything. There's also certain single-use plastics that aren't necessary. And the straw is such a perfect example of something that when we critically reevaluated whether we needed a straw in our life, the vast majority of people on the planet just said, nah, I can live without it. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and, and this opens a new era because we, we, we question the straw. Mm-hmm. But then most critic, most people with good critical thinking skills also pick up something else and something else. Before we get off the subject, because we have so much ground to cover, tell me other things that that could be like the straw and that that any of us just practical use day to day life sort of practical tip. What else besides straws? You know, I I, I just drove nineteen hours. I told you to get back <laughs> to the family farm in Illinois, and I stopped at a at a hamburger place in mm-hmm. my one little stop and. I refuse the straw. <laughs> well done. Well done. Okay. Thank you. So what else like that do you see in our daily lives that you're like, oh, if we could only make a video about that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's, there's an absolute multitude of things. And I think people are slowly picking on to all of them. Like obvious ones are like straws, plastic utensils, as I mentioned. Plastic bags are another huge one. The difference between having your canvas bag or just a rucksack or just carrying your items with you. I used to, uh, when I was at university, I worked, when I was at university and before actually, I worked in a bookstore for many, many years. And one of the things you are supposed to do as a cashier is someone buys a book and you put the book in a plastic bag and you give them the bag. And I still remember back when I was 16, 17, I used to ask people every time, like, do you need a bag? And I wouldn't give them one unless they specifically asked one. And I still remember at some point telling people like, you have a backpack, do you want to just put it in there? And like, I, I tell that as a story because there's there's lots of there's lots of ways. It's just about critically, as you said, evaluating our life around us. Packaging is another wonderful one, where you'll notice, like when you go to the supermarkets, some people will buy all their fruit and veg and put it specifically in separate bags and things like that, and other people don't. And sometimes the supermarket minds, and sometimes the supermarket doesn't. And there's plenty of times where if you're just buying one bit of fruit, you don't need to wrap it up in a bag, and you don't need to have it packaged in this way, and you don't need to have it cellophane-wrapped and things like that. You just have a piece of fruit. So there's, there's lots of opportunities. 
And I'm sure most of us, when we start evaluating our lives, can quite happily say, okay, do we need this extra piece of plastic or packaging? Do we need to use that plastic bag? Things like that. When I'm going to buy anything from clothing, am I going to go buy clothing that's covered in extra packaging and might not be made in a sustainable manner? Or am I going to take the packet, the clothing that has zero packaging and is made from the most sustainable materials possible? This is where we're at now. I really feel like much of society is at a tipping point where we're stopped. We are not going through the motions anymore. Mm -hmm. I was writing a little bit for a TED talk that I'm going to give. And I realized that at Christmas, Mm -hmm. I have to do my homework before I buy my kids their gifts. Because (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't do research on the company where that thing came from. And Mm -hmm. they know some horrific thing about the CEO or the or the supply chain or something like that. Whoa, I could I could be in for the lecture of my life. <laughs> but isn't this wonderful? Isn't this wonderful? So we have we're slowly getting I'd say like an informed consumer basis, right? And what we're trying to do and I think this is wonderful especially about the youth of today, the younger generations of today is we're holding companies accountable, right? I don't just want a company that gives me the best trainers in the world or the best sneakers or the best this or whatever. I want a company that I I believe in, a company that I stand for. And I think it was actually, I I think I could be entirely wrong on this. I think it was Michael Pollan in The Omnivore's Dilemma when he talks about every purchase is a vote. And I really do think that we are seeing this in society now because when people are buying things, it's a vote. You're saying, I want, this is the way I want the world to work. If you all buy the latest iPhone, you're saying, I want the world to work the way that Apple wants the way the world to work. And I love this idea that you have all these young people who are starting to say, no, like this company, mm, they've done things I don't agree with. They don't sustain, they don't, they're not sustainably sourcing all their materials, but these companies are actually donating back to conservation. They're replanting trees. They're part of these initiatives that I believe in. They're supporting efforts in the local community. This is where I want my money to go. And this is just as important as the product you're getting. I think that informed consumerism is an incredibly powerful force in our world today. Yeah. And I I really believe uh, we're at a tipping point where corporations, organizations, at leaders in general are going to realize that you can do good business and mm-hmm. do good for the world in the future too. You know, I was listening to this fabulous TED talk. I, by the end of the, I'll remember who it's by Amber. Oh, she's a director of marketing for Morgan Stanley. I'll remember her name in a minute. Anyway, she has this amazing short TED talk. I think that you'd, you'd like it. It's about why doesn't the stock market, why don't people realize corporations and people interested in the stock market that it is good business mm-hmm. to do work that serves a purpose and markets to a certain niche and so forth and have a socially conscious mission. Mm-hmm. Tells about the fact that if you invested a dollar mm-hmm. in just regular companies that are just all about growth 20 years ago, you'd have $14 and 49 cents. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if you developed, if you invested in companies that were about growth, but had a social mission in 20 years, you'd have $28 and 36 cents. <laughs> So twice the growth. But I, I, I don't think, for some reason, in my mind, this, even though this is an incredibly powerful statement, this isn't, this doesn't feel, it doesn't feel to me like rocket science. And it makes me think about your, your picking friends, right? You have your friends in high school 
and you have some who are some I don't know, some have more money than others this guy has a better car than others this guy has a house that always has house parties this guy has whatever and they, they're don't get me wrong it's beneficial to have these additional like or to be friends with the guy who or the person who yeah can let you have the house parties the house or has more money or has the fancy car but at the end of the day most of your friends are the good people human humanity likes good we like people who respect each other we like people who go out and do good things we uh, we're happy to donate and support causes that we think about doing good in the world humans i i do honestly believe that the vast majority of people in the world are good and we all gravitate towards good so this idea of a company not just creating a product but also selling or goodness creating the fact that it's doing some a positive impact of course that's of course it makes it makes perfect sense i want to be part of a good world i want to be part of a world where people look after each other and i it's 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 funny because to me it's it's such a novel idea yet at the same time it's has it makes so much sense and just in us as humans yeah it it really it comes to the the new chapter that i think that is opening has a lot to do with if we can get ourselves curious enough to discover, mm-hmm. you know, when we're headed off to get some lumber, we've got mm-hmm. two major choices. I'm not going to name names, but most of us realize we've got two <laughs> major choices. You know, will we go and just do a quick search of the CEO or the mission or whatever of one versus the other and spend our our money in the one that, that you know, aligns with our values? Will mm-hmm. we do, will we get curious enough to actually do the work to decide which tennis shoe company we want to? give our money to tell us a little bit about about curiosity because we i know that this is this is uh something a force in your life that's caused you to be exactly where you are and and me too how can we inspire curiosity in consumers and tie it back to this niche that you're in what a what a wonderful question so curiosity is something that is inherent in all of us we're all curious in some way, shape, or form. There's not a single person who isn't curious. But I think as we grow up, some of our curiosities start to change. And what we're interested in starts to change. And I think some of us who are able to stay curious or continually stay curious about the whole world around us, to some extent, we have our eyes open to the wide range of, we'll never know the entire universe. I, I, I'm a marine biologist. I'm never going to understand in the ocean. It's, it's, just, it's unobtainable. If you're a business person, you'll, you'll never understand the entirety of business. And, but as we get older, I think sometimes we start to trick ourselves with this idea that we know enough that we start to think that we understand the way certain parts of the world work. And because of that, it, that actually dampens our curiosity because it kind of becomes closed. It's, it's, you've defined it. You understand it. And I think this idea of trying to convince people, and this shouldn't be a scary thought, but the idea that there's always something out there to learn. We've never learned enough about any given subject because the world is so incredibly complex that we'll never completely define it, understand it. There's always complexity. There's always nuance. And that that's beautiful. That's fun. That's exciting. That's, that's us understanding the world around us. And the way I try and tie that into what I do is I try and share that with people. I have looked at everything from 
sea turtles to giant squid to tiny little snails and tiny little marine plants that kind of live in the remote nooks and crannies of the oceans. And there's so much fascinating information there. There's so much novelty, newness. Thing, like There's so much beauty and just weirdness, things you would never expect. This is the way the world works. And by trying to share all those cool stories, I think that helps get people, peaks people's curiosity. And that's what helps people. That's an incredibly powerful tool for, for me and my line of work of trying to get people to protect and conserve the ocean. And then to, try to tie that back to consumerism and how we then try to get that to connect to what we purchase and buy is... I mean, I think it's all kind of one and the same, right? Once you have an appreciation for the world and you see the value in the world, then you start to realize this connection between what you're purchasing and how it impacts the world around you. And trying to build that education and understand how it's all intertwined and it's all beautifully complex, but fascinatingly complex or scarily complex. I think those are the tools that we need to share, the education that we need to share to get people more excited about protecting the world we live in and making it a better, happier place for everyone. Yeah, you know, I think that this complexity, this reverence for complexity goes against human nature a little bit because we always want to, <laughs> we want to simplify things, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you seem to have a reverence for complexity. And you can see it in the video when you guys are going on and you're thinking, you're thinking, you're thinking that this is a biologic thing you're pulling out. And then all of a sudden there's this aha moment where you realize what you're actually dealing with. And, you know, I noticed that, that there, there's some anger <laughs> that's best in that video, obviously, because mm -hmm. you guys realize this is a thing that could have been avoided. But, you know, you switch gears really fast and it's lovely to see us deal with the imperfections in the mm -hmm. world around us with curiosity, which kind of like a, okay, this is it. Okay. Now what do we do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I really love that aspect. And you and I need to talk a lot more and, and I want to let you tell some stories about <laughs> these kind of curiosities. So mm -hmm. let's take a break. We have a really amazing platform that we just launched at Everwinding Circles called the Conspiracy of Goodness Network. Mm -hmm. Professional and personal growth network where people who are trying to do good in the world can come together. So I'm going to break to a commercial where we talk about that just a little bit, just a little bit, and then we'll be back and we'll dive into some of your amazing stories. <laughs> Wonderful. Do you thrive on learning from and collaborating with others for the good that's in the world? And becoming a better version of yourself, both personally and professionally, every day, we have built something just for you. The Conspiracy of Goodness Network. You can be a part of the first networking platform that prioritizes personal and professional growth as we work together to make the world a better place. The Conspiracy of Goodness Network is a vetted platform of entrepreneurs, creatives, and professionals who are committed to making the future brighter for us all, people like you. On the network, you can ask questions and find help with projects, share trusted resources, request and attempt workshops, expand your network of thought leaders, and learn from the experience of others to catalyze your work, interests, and passion projects. 
This is a place where all of us who are doing something to improve the world, large and small, can flourish. The $35 a month membership fee includes attendance to exclusive monthly happiness hours where you can hear from amazing speakers and influencers. It includes participation in monthly community challenges that will improve your own life and the world around you. You'll have access to the network's mentor match service to grow exponentially in your insight and decision making. And you'll get automatic discounts on all of our courses and events. So join us, co-conspirators for goodness around the world, those who are doing anything they can to make the world a better place, are coming together on this network to collaborate, and it is time we find each other. Go to conspiracyofgoodnessnetwork.com for a simple three-step questionnaire to apply to be a member today. Let's connect, collaborate, and change the future. Okay, so now we're back. All right. So if we start with something you said to me when we were chatting about your parents and your upbringing, was that your parents were both teachers. I thought the combination was lovely. <laughs> Nathan told me one, one of his parents was a teacher of technology and the other drama. And yes. I thought, oh, wow, what a combination for somebody who's working to be a great communicator of science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh. But something I wrote down was that you said, they were fascinated by the little things. Mm-hmm. That's such a lovely sentiment because that's something that's all around us all the time. Tell me, tell me a story from that, that genre and your experience. It's, it's, it's to do with this idea of there's kind of going back to what we said about complexity. There's complexity and beauty in simple things. So yes, you can be fascinated by the, the glory of, say, the cosmos and looking at the stars and trying to explain how the stars work and things like this. But you can also be fascinated as, like my mum, the nuance between how someone talks, because as a drama teacher, like your body language and the simple ways that a person, their facial expressions might change when they're interacting with someone they like or someone they don't like or when they're trying to play a certain part. And these are, these are simple things that are part of everyday life but these are the kind of things that my parents would sit down and hyper-analyze and talk to about each other, talk to each other about, sorry. And I think that really helped me get this understanding that there's there's so much complexity to everything, to everything we do. My dad at the same time was, so my dad was a technology teacher and he was actually a, kind of a carpenter by trade originally. And I used to love, he would be built, he'd build something, he'd build a table and in my mind, especially as a, as a kid, you construct a table by, you put four legs down, you put a base on top, done. You might put a couple of nails to hold it together or a bit of glue, that's it. But working alongside my dad, I started noticing that a table is as complex as you want a table to be, whether it's the million and one ways that you can attach the legs to the base, the million and one ways you can build the structure, the million and one ways, the different kinds of wood, the way you are going to plane the wood to kind of build its shape and whether you do it in this direction, that direction, all these kind of nuance, just for some reason, it's always fascinated me. I, I, I can find, I can find myself fascinated by the smallest things. And I think that's due to the way my parents interacted with the world around them and because of their, their because they were both teachers they love to share this information so i was this little sponge just listening to 
everything they had to say to me and tell me about the world. And it's, it was an incredible gift they gave me, and I'm uh, eternally thankful. So, you know, in that statement that you just made about that being a gift, you're bringing back, I would say, if I had to have a kind of a high-level description of what you're doing, I think you're bringing back the shared humanity that we all have in discovery about the natural world, right? It's not just about you following your own path personally and your own curiosity. I think really good science communicators are looking at it, what it means to all of us, why this matters. Completely. Science is about understanding the world around us, but science can only build off other science. Like discoveries only build off other discoveries. If we communicate this to one another. That's how we grow. That's how science grows. Science, there is no such thing as a scientist who stands alone. All scientists are standing on the shoulders of every other scientist ever, and the collective understanding is growing off each other. Now, because of this, scientists are generally only as good as their ability to communicate. If I had the best discovery in the world, but I can't explain the importance of that discovery or the meaning, the implications of that discovery to anyone else, it doesn't mean anything. It lives inside my head and the idea will die inside my head. Um, I think this is a tool that as scientists, we really need to start embracing. And I think this is why science slash science communicators have such a major role these days is trying to take some of those wonderful new discoveries and try to share it. This is about global education, engaging people. To do that, we have to talk in a different way. We can't talk in our scientific jargon. We can't approach people in a kind of unengaging scientific format the way we often see it. We have to make it human. We have to make it so that there's passion, there's feeling, there's emotion, there's curiosity, there's all those human emotions, and we have to put it in language that people understand. Those are the, the, the secrets. That's the secret source to communication in my mind. And I think we're at a tipping point. I'd be interested to hear your comments on this. So the week we're recording this is this very unique week in February of 2021, when it went way, way, way below zero in states like Texas, Mississippi. There's people freezing to death <laughs> in parts of the country that is, that's not seen these kind of temperatures in decades, if not a hundred years. Now, I've noticed in the news, I don't know, just a high-level overview, there's a lot of talk about global climate change that's coming from, like, like you would expect, when, when everybody's forced to face global weirding, I've heard it called, which I think is so much better than global warding, right? Yes. Weirding. I mean, this is what it is when people in Texas are freezing to death. Yeah. <laughs> right? In southern Texas. So... I, so I often tell a story that, that one of the best science communicators ever was a man named Carl Sagan. Some yes. people will remember Carl Sagan as this astronomer who made space interesting mm -hmm. for us all, who, who made it connect to our, to our core very easily. And people used to ask Carl, do you think we'll ever get to Mars? And he used to say, well, you know, a better question may be, who will we have to become to be able to get to Mars. And I think he was commenting on the fact that we needed some personal growth. <laughs> <laughs> that we, as a species, needed to get to another level that we could even, we could probably technically get that journey to happen. But mm -hmm. would we be 
alive in the spacecraft that made it there because we fight so much and we we're we're always trying to simplify the complexity of life into sound bites now. Mm-hmm. So I wonder about how how this climate change issue how how that strikes you because when we were chatting before we talked you said the most extraordinary thing about <laughs> about connecting climate change to what Carl Sagan used to say. Tell me yes. about your um, Carl Sagan was such an incredible, I mean, an inspiration for so many of us in this idea, as we spoke, this idea of building curiosity. It's, he did it so effortlessly and easily, and he had such a unique way of looking at the world. And that point that's so powerful, what you just said, this idea of who do we need to be to get someone to Mars? We as humans have an incredible capacity to achieve what we want to achieve. I mean, look at look at the last 10 years and how technology has progressed. Go 20 years back, no one had cell phones. We barely kind of understood what the internet was to where we are today. Like the world is changing in such a rapid way. I'm a firm believer that when we start to commit ourselves to these ideas, we can achieve them so easily. We're incredibly smart people. But it's, it's whether we have that drive, right? So if you tie this all into climate change, the question is not, can we address climate change? If we wanted to address climate change, we can. If we wanted to reduce our CO2 emissions, we can. The technology is there. It's been proven time and time over that if we really wanted to make these changes, we can. The important question now is, who do we need to be if we want to tackle climate change? So who do we need to be as a population? How do we need to think collectively to start to enact these laws, policies, technologies that we need to fix the world's climate? And this, especially now, especially in climate change is so important because I'm a firm believer that climate change is not a, a technological issue anymore. It is not a matter of the technology simply isn't there. It's a cultural issue. Tackling climate change it's like it's a humanitarian issue like it's a matter of us putting our collective willpower together to achieve and solve a bigger problem and we have so much capacity for that 100 percent, more than we even realize <laughs> we've just shown it so many times throughout human history i mean think about what it was like you know during the stone age to try and keep your children alive and Think about what it was like during the era of the pyramids if you were a slave. Think about what it was like. And we keep going. We keep finding a way to survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. But, but when we didn't even know what was on the other side of the oceans, we sent people on boats to explore the other sides of the world. And I'm not even talking about kind of colonial exploration. I'm talking about if you go back to the original people who colonized Australia, for example, that was people in small boats heading through the, the kind of islands of Indonesia, just heading off in a direction and with nothing beyond, nothing beyond a wooden boat, carved out boat to travel. Them. And then you go forward in time, how many years, and you think how we've tackled, we've seen, I mean, we've seen pandemics in the past. And we've risen up and we've come up with vaccines for smallpox that have helped save millions of people when we've seen these big issues we've all there's been so many times in history that we've banded together seen these major issues or seen these big challenges and sometimes it's individuals and sometimes it's populations but people have come together and made a real change 
Now, what I've noticed, if you look at that kind of historically, that it always seems to, uh, we humans, we kind of need our back against the wall before we come together. It's, <laughs> do you think we're there? I mean, I, I don't hear anyone saying they love these times of division and chaos and negativity. Our, our, is our collective back against the wall on this so where we can finally just move forward? This is like the procrastination thing. This is like when you know you've got a deadline, but the deadline is far enough away that, yeah, you spend days messing around on Facebook and you clean your room four or five times and you call your friends and only until you know, it has to be done, just you really all of a sudden find the motivation to make the change. And I, I think that in the same way that we're starting to see, we see like these, there's a global pandemic of procrastination now with the, the impact of, say, social media and how people interact with the internet and things like this. But at the same time, we're coming up with all these techniques and treatments and understanding of, okay, so this is becoming a problem. We now need to fix this. I think collectively, hopefully, we'll be able to do that on a societal level so that we sometimes we don't have to have our backs up against the wall to make the change. But... It def- I'll, I'll leave it at this. It definitely helps. When the clock is ticking, <laughs> that's when humanity generally starts to know, okay, something needs to happen. Well, you know, one of the, one of the things that I love about your the, the fact that we're chatting and that, that that video recording in that particular circumstance that day made the, the issue of single-use plastics and, and ocean pollution and so many other things that are tied to that now in the punch brought it to the public consciousness in a very big way. I love that, that we're there. Mm-hmm. Now, now where do we go? I feel that there's a, there's a social pressure for p- folks to get on board and, and what do we do next and who's in charge and how do we collaborate? But what you told me about your video is that lots and lots of people just did what they can do with what they had individually. It didn't sound like there was any organization whatsoever. Nope. It was entirely, the video especially, everything was entirely organic. It built on the inspiration of individuals, all growing like fireworks, kind of like exploding out. And here's something that's really cool. Like the major ecological issues that we're facing right now, that's not just the oceans, but our planet in general, plastic accumulation, climate change, and we're talking about the oceans, we're talking about ocean acidification. These all issues that we can address as people. These aren't kind of localized issues. These are global issues that we all play a role in, whether it's whether we dispose of single-use plastics properly or we don't, whether we, whether we say, bike to work or we drive to work or whether we buy sustainably sourced clothing or uh, unsustainably sourced clothing. These all tie into these bigger picture issues. So in some of these ways, I fully believe that say, governments, for example, have a role to play in trying to monitor these issues. But humans, individuals, we're the ones who are also playing this major role. We are part of this. We are the consumers. And we also, because of that, have a responsibility to make the change. And when we want to, we will. We decide all of a sudden that we don't want... We don't want to see any more climate change. We don't want to see it getting warmer. And everyone just decides, right, I'm jumping on my bike. I'm walking to work. You'll see an amazing change worldwide. It'll be absolutely incredible. And we can see the same thing with whether we only want to eat sustainably sourced food or or sustainably sourced seafood. The capacity is there. It's now down to us. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's a hopeful thing. Let's let's share some some of the hopeful things with people that I, I think that your work touches on. For instance, I learned that you love to talk about conservation in terms of this great thought that conservation doesn't work until people's basic needs are met. You can't stop people from getting bushmeat if their mm-hmm. children are starving. I mean, there's a level of common sense there, Nathan, that <laughs> that I, I think is just <laughs> elegant. Let's call it elegant. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I can't take, I wasn't the person who came up with that idea, but I can believe in it 100%. You will never be able to enact conservation until you meet people's basic needs. And it really started to hit home for me when I started doing my sea turtle conservation work. As a sea turtle biologist, I was working in a lot of tropical remote places around the world i was doing a lot of work in south africa and costa rica and before i started working in some of these places when i heard about people who poach sea turtles so people who are taking eggs and eating eggs which is generally illegal in most of these countries i kind of had this black and white idea that like these are the bad guys poachers are the bad guys right if i read in the news that the they're the the bad people who are conducting something illegal. And then honestly, it was when I started going to some of these projects and I started realizing that these aren't that these are not bad people. This is just a different way of saying seeing the world. And it's very difficult to to stay, stand behind a sea turtle and say, This is an endangered species, please don't eat those eggs. When someone can turn around to you and say, Hey, if I can take those eggs and I can sell them, that's another meal for my kids. And then you start to realize. Whoa, 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 whoa. I have this situation entirely wrong. If I want to, if I want to start protecting these turtles, it's not about me standing here and guarding a sea turtle from any potential poachers. It's about trying to build a livelihood for and support my fellow humans. <laughs> if I can support fellow humans so they don't need to be walking up and down a beach in the middle of the night trying to harvest sea turtle eggs, they won't be there. This is the first, the first step that we need to take. And for that reason, conservation, in the way I actually see it in my mind, most people see conservation in terms of it's managing wildlife. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to manage, protect, conserve wildlife. I actually see conservation a lot as about trying to look after people. If we can look after people, if we can provide these support networks that mean that people have shelter and they have food and they have security and they know that they're going to have that into the future and they know they have opportunities to grow and expand they have everything that humans want and need to kind of feel filled then all of a sudden when you start saying okay please don't take these eggs of the sea turtle or please don't use that plastic straw or please don't do this it's not essential it's it's very easy to make these changes but you have to make sure that humans basic needs and basic needs of happiness are met first that's that's the essential it's so true. So we have to care about each other. Yes. We can't be operating with this scarcity mentality where we think everyone else's gain is some connected to some loss of our own. Mm-hmm. I really look at a lot of the thought leaders projects and the endeavors that we write about at Everwinding Circles and the thought leaders that I speak to and think, gosh, almost none of these people need an enemy. No. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm telling you, it's a really big thing I've noticed is that you can't get Topher White to talk about the enemy. He's the guy that has figured out a way to save all the rainforest mm-hmm. in the world with old cell phones. You know, the, the guy who started Skatistan and is using skateboards to educate street children in Afghanistan. 
You can't get him to talk about an enemy. He's really just focused on what we can all do together. Yes. What we can agree upon. Nobody's going to say it's good to have street children that are uneducated in Afghanistan. You can't make a case for that. <laughs> so everyone is agreeing that that is a problem. And so he's found this clever way with skateboards to solve it. But, sorry, everyone can agree that it's a problem. But he's mm-hmm. found this clever way with skateboards to solve it. So anyway. Okay, I don't want to miss the wonder in our conversation because you've got this whole other part of this life that we're, we may even have to have you back to talk about it because we didn't spend enough time there today. But talk to us about the wonder of being, are you the or one of the first people to film a giant squid down <laughs> down very deep in the ocean? Yes, I am. too? So this... Once again, everything I do is part of a team. The, there's nowhere on earth I would have been able to film the the sea turtle being pulled out of the, the straw without Chris being there with the camera. And for the giant squid stuff, I was able to work with... I I was part of a team that recorded the first ever footage of a live giant squid in U.S. waters. And the team was Edie Widder, who was the person who recorded the first ever footage of a giant squid in the world. And... What I love so much about the the deep sea stuff that I've been able to do with Edie and will continue to do in the future is when you talk about wonderment, I love this idea that so there's a species, the giant squid, grow to 14 meters, 42 foot in length. It is, I can mention the giant squid, I can mention the kraken to any school kid anywhere in the world. And everyone knows that everyone's seen movies or read books or has can draw you the giant squid dragging a, a boat to, to its doom. But this is a species that we've never, or we, we have two video clips of or two instances where we've caught this animal alive on camera. And I find this crazy. It just shows to me how much there still is left to discover in, in our ocean. And it's like it's a captivating thing. It's an animal of like myth and legend, right? It's about from Greek myths, but it's it's real. It exists, and and if we're smart enough and where we care about our oceans enough, these are the kind of mysteries that uh, await us. Now, you were you we were talking a, a little bit ahead of time, and we talked about this this glow in the dark phenomenon mm-hmm. because. I think there's a lot of wonder there that 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 is to be chatted about. You know, we just published an article today about the fact that they've discovered platypus glow in the dark. <laughs> mm-hmm. And turns out lots of animals do and we don't. So why mm-hmm. is that? And all that line of questioning. And you said, Linda, almost everything in this ocean gets glows <laughs> in the dark. So tell us some about that wonder. Over over 50% of life in the deep sea creates its own light. Now, when you get to the surface waters, everything's bright. Like if you've ever been snorkeling, you can see the water. Even if it's murky, it's still bright. But as you go down, the amount of light that comes from the surface decreases. Depending on where you are in the ocean, when you get somewhere between 200 to 500 meters, so somewhere between about 600 to 1,500 foot, there is no light from the surface anymore. It is perpetual night. permanent inky blackness and this might might lead you to believe that it's there's nothing there's nothing to see but if you are one of the people who's lucky enough to send a camera down there or head down there in a submersible all of a sudden you see this 
incredible light display of, as I said, the vast majority of life down there is created, creates its own light, called bioluminescence. And it comes in lots of different shapes, sizes, colors, intensities. Uh, and one, this kind of gets back into the wonderment of, we know it's there. We know these animals produce it. But in lots of these instances, we still haven't figured out exactly why. Is it to do with communication between each other? Is it to do with trying to scare away potential predators? Is it to do with attacking potential prey? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And sometimes there are some animals out there that they have these incredible light displays. And we still at this point, where we just have to shrug our shoulders and say, it's beautiful, but we still need to figure this stuff out. It's amazing that mm-hmm. we have this, this whole world to discover below mm-hmm. our oceans and we're spending billions of dollars to go outside our our atmosphere and explore space around us but whenever i talk to people with with your level of knowledge about the ocean i realize how much exploration there is to be done right here i think the the statement you just made about we're spending all this effort and kind of going out into the stars and we're not actually looking into the bottom of the ocean is so incredible and Edie, I'm going to probably misquote this now, but Edie had a fantastic quote from an article that she put, uh, published just last week where she was saying, I think for the cost of sending or the cost of one of the Challenger missions or the cost of sending a, uh, a spaceship to the moon, we could have funded two submarine trips to the bottom of the ocean for the next hundred years, every day for the next hundred years. And this idea is, what will we know about ourselves through doing what will we discover because that's where all life starts yeah and it's it's this it's the biggest ecosystem on this planet is the deep sea two-thirds of the planet is ocean and two-thirds of the ocean is deep waters and by deep waters we mean deeper than a thousand meters so deeper than three thousand foot or so and we know literally nothing about these habitats we've barely even skimmed the surface when you go on deep sea or when you go on kind of research vessels or even fishing vessels that are fishing in these habitats they're bringing up new species on a, on a daily basis that uh, oftentimes like completely undescribed scientists don't even know about it it's, i find it amazing when you often talk to fisheries that work into some of these habitats they will know species that no scientist has ever seen described they've found them and this is part of our planet. And it's all interconnected. One thing that probably the most important lesson that you ever received when you have an ecology class is how interconnected every single habitat on this planet is. The temperature and the wind in the surface helps drive the way that the oceans circulate. And the amount of air or amount of of plant life produced at the surface dictates the amount of, say, oxygen that makes it into the deep ocean. Now, the amount of oxygen that makes it out into the deep ocean affects how much co2 carbon dioxide is sequestered which means you get locked away from the habitat so when the more you start to learn about our oceans the more you start to learn that everything is interconnected everything affects something else and if we want to take care of the oceans we have to understand that complexity and we can't understand the complexity of our planet of the ecological systems that hold our planet together that provide life that support the seven, almost eight billion people on this planet until we've understood that complexity and the deep ocean is part of that. You know, I think it's it's realizing our connection to all that 
that is is empowering. It's 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 why we matter. It's mm-hmm. why what we do and our choices matter. I think it's an empowering thought mm-hmm. to learn about your work and and understand that that we all have a role to play. That's wonderfully empowering. We're we don't have to be victims of of climate change or pollution or anything else that we have this opportunity day after day in our daily lives to be a part of what comes next. Completely. It's about it's about giving forward, right? Giving giving to the people who come next for and and to our to our brothers and sisters, to our friends, our families. It's about taking care of us. And when I say us, I don't mean me and the people nearest to me. I mean us as a as a collective. I mean everyone on this planet. This is about us looking after each other collectively. Yeah, and there's a there's a lovely feeling of meaning and belonging that we can seek there. Mm-hmm. Just as we've sort of made some trip up mistakes, maybe seeking our people in our in the division we find ourselves in now. Mm-hmm. You know, what if we sought out what we can all agree upon? Mm-hmm. We started there. There, what th- no one wants beaches to be littered with plastic. No one, not one person, says mm-hmm. this is great. And so, if we start with this common theme that everybody wants to be able, able to walk a beautiful beach anywhere on the planet that isn't covered with garbage, we start there. So, if we can agree upon that one thing, then mm-hmm. it's, we're going to rely on people like you who are good communicators of the why and the how. There's something I, I love this subject. This is amazing. There's one thing I think about so much, and as I mentioned earlier, this whole idea about like we're all connected with each other and the reason you why do some people care about the people that they're immediately connected with but might not care about the impact of future people or people on the other side of the planet people i've never met before and one thing i when i'm thinking about this uh, the idea that's often i often kind of mull over because i think it's very true is when it talks about road rage driving a car right so you're driving a car someone cuts you up cuts in front of you and all of a sudden you're angry you're you're upset that someone's driven in an unsafe manner or they're slowing you down and you're furious until you come to a light or something or someone steps out and all of a sudden you see them face to face and all of a sudden all your anger diminishes for most of us the vast majority of people and part of that and they've proven this there's wonderful ted talks on this it talks about it's because of the empathy because before it was an unfeeling, uncaring object that cut us up. And then as soon as you associate that with a person, all of a sudden you feel this, you connect with a person. You look someone in the eyes and you see them as a person, you care for them. And all of a sudden you're not, you don't just want to shout and insult them. You actually, you want to sympathize with them. You wish them well. And I know this is a generalization. It doesn't always work that way, but we understand the, the principles behind it. So I would love for us as like humanity, start brainstorming ways how do we start bridging that gap? How do we start building that empathy for people on the planet who we might never get to see face-to-face, who might not speak the same language as us, people who we might never meet? But even though, to me, they might just be a statistic. I know there are people who live in this part of the world. I might never meet one of them. But I still, how do we build ways to empathize with those people and treat them all as humans? And I think once we start to address that issue, that's going to help us deal with this collective, like collective empathy? How do we start to think of the collective as us, not 
the people who live in Spain or the people who live in the US or the people who live in the UK or the people who wear the same clothes as me or the people who talk the same way as me. We start thinking about it in terms of us. We're all human living beings and we can all connect over that. And how do we build that empathy? I, I, would, I would love to know your thoughts on that. <laughs> well, I think it comes back to this thing that we talked about a half hour ago, which is curiosity. You know, mm-hmm. I shared with you that right now I'm, I'm visiting the family farm. Mm-hmm thousand miles from where I where I've lived for the last 30 years and I've noticed that anything I'm living with my brother temporarily while I'm taking care of some a family emergency and I noticed that when something he says strikes me a little wrong mm-hmm. all I have to do is get curious all I have to do is say oh my gosh that I'm curious about that tell me how tell me how you come to think that way or whatever and I am learning the most the most incredible things about my brother's life and mm-hmm. things that happened to him that I had no idea about and why he thinks the way he does and I'm so much more at peace than I was 5 days ago because I was simply thrown into a situation where we're with each other now 18 hours a day and I had to get curious and I'm sure haven't some of these conversations or have some of these conversations, they've helped build, build a bridge in areas where you previously might not have, you might have judged your brother for whatever opinions or viewpoints he had. Now you've actually built that connection. You're talking about them. You start to see his point of view. It opens your eyes because you see, hey, wait, there's, only, there's not just one way to see the world. There's multiple ways to see the world. There's multiple reasons. There's multiple justifications for everything. And it brings everyone together. We start to realize that, okay, no, actually, no. We're all, we, all, we all have the same concerns about our future and our health and our family and the things. We all have the same issues. We're just all tackling it in a slightly different way. And, and sometimes it calls for something my brother did. Nathan and I were supposed to record yesterday, and I, I <laughs> backed my car off a 20-foot ledge on the family farm. And so I had to cancel this recording because I was going to sit there for a good four hours waiting for a tow truck. Again, we're recording this during this huge cold snap. And he and I, when I called him to say I'd done this with the car and I was stuck on the edge of the precipice, he was, he had a few choice words to share with me. (laughs) Uh, Whatever. (laughs) It was going to drag him out of the house and he had to come save me. And, you know, we had a little shouting match. And then he said, and you know what, Linda, we just need to get our act together. We have to work together. These are hard times. It's negative eight out on this farm. And there's this breaking and this breaking, and we're not going to get through this unless we work together. So let's just put this behind us and get your darn car out and have a nice evening. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I love the simplicity of this. Yes, we're not going to agree upon this or that. Yes, everybody's tempers are flaring, but we got to just pause. And there's so much wisdom in that. Yeah, it was just really a funny moment. I'm, n- I'm not going to forget because he recognized that we were in such a, such a situation because he was trying to manage three other calamities on the farm. <laughs> Uh, well, for God's sakes, let's not lose our heads. We both have to stay on our feet and work mm-hmm. together. So <laughs> I think that's a really good way to wrap this up. It, I, I think that's the way conservation is going to work. We have to stay on our feet and work together. Mm-hmm. It's the way climate change is going to come. We're going to come around and, and make the future something that our grandkids would be glad we created for them. Mm-hmm. Tell me, as we close here, where people can connect with you and your work and your thoughts. Are, are, you, are you writing? Are you regularly being interviewed? Should people just look you up? On the inter- <laughs> yes, you can always follow me at wild.blue.science. I have Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Please, you can reach out to me and message me any way, shape or form. I do a lot of science writing. I also do a lot of 
science communication writing. So if you want to look up some of my stuff, just check out my pages and always feel free to, to reach out. I'm always happy to talk about the work I've done. I'm always happy to hear other people's stories. So please don't, if you send me a message, I'll, I'll respond. So I'm always happy to talk to people from whatever viewpoint anyone has. That's how we, as exactly as you're saying just then, Dr. Linda, this is, this is how we grow. This is how we go. This is how we grow. Right. So one last question I always ask every guest is, you know, ever widening circles are uh, on the website at ever widening circles. We have a tagline that is, uh, it is still an amazing world. Mm-hmm. So Nathan, what proves to you every day that it's still an amazing world? I, it, it never, yeah. I mean, the still is important. It never stopped being an amazing world. And the beauty that we can find in, I mean, I, I go out of my way to try to find these incredible events that really try to grab people's attention. But often what catches me is I'll be, whatever, I'll be walking through the park one day and I'll look up and I'll see the way the, the leaves are rustling. And I'm one of these kind of inherently curious people that I'll get like a, a rush of emotion coming over me. And part of me just has to sit there and think, isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that incredible the way that the way that the lights work and the color works? This beautiful moment. You kind of want to get lost in this beauty. And as soon as you start to start to think on those lines, it becomes kind of infectious because it's this it's appreciation and gratitude for the world you live in. And you start to realize that almost everywhere you look, there's its own beauty. And it's finding those moments of beauty that fill me with a, a ton of curiosity and that's what helps me know that it's still a wonderful world. Oh my gosh. That is a lovely way. I'm not sure I'll ever see the sun sparkle through leaves again without thinking of you, Nathan. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. I feel touched. <laughs> yeah. That is, the, that is the level of wonder that is all around us at all times. Very lovely. So you've given us the description of where we can find you and connect with you. That'll be all down in the show notes. Anything that Nathan and I referred to will be in the show notes. We have the best producers of this podcast and they do a wonderful job getting people all the information they need in a, in a text way below. So thank you so much for joining us. This is crazy good. And we'll have to pick up this, this conversation again soon. Please. I had a wonderful time. I've loved hearing hearing more about your stories i'm so happy that you managed to get safely out of that ditch yesterday Uh, i Um, learned a lot through the through that four hours of craziness it's (laughs) life's lessons they're always all around us wonderful well if you ever want to keep talking i'm more than happy to keep chatting so if you want to do this again sometime i'd love to appear again on uh, ever widening circles okay great okay so we're going to close out now you know for more information and on anything we mentioned check out the show notes and thanks to our affiliate partners for proving it is still an amazing world you can find information about today's featured partner in the show notes below too we have these great affiliate companies that are, are just doing wonderful things to keep our work going and remember to check out the conspiracy of goodness network If you are doing good in the world, small or large, this is the place to find your kindred spirits, to find others who are trying to make the world a better place and probably suffering with a lot of the craziness and problems that you suffer from. And we decided to create what we needed at Everwinding Circles. The team at Everwinding Circles need connection to others who are struggling to make a big impact for good. And so that will be a place where you can find like-minded people who can be a multiplier for your own work. 
As always, dive into Ever Widening Circles. The website there will put a spring in your step. And I hope all these connections to goodness and progress carry through your week. And you start finding all that joy and wonder that Nathan and I have been talking about. Thank you.